Welcome to Dr. Doctor. We are the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our very popular returning guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We are pleased to have back Harvard psychiatrist, Dr. Kevin Majors. Today, we're going to do something a little different with Kevin. Instead of talking about anxiety, we're going to talk about the specialty of psychiatry itself. Last time we had him on the show, afterwards, off-air, he mentioned how it's a goal of his to try to encourage more Catholics to go into the field of psychiatry. We're going to talk about why and what it means to be a psychiatrist, because there are many myths and truths about psychiatrists, who they are, what they do. I, th- I think psychiatry is probably one of the more un- misunderstood specialties. Um, and not only is it misunderstood, but it's also underserved, underrepresented. Oh, hugely underserved. I mean, ever since I've been in medicine, trying to get somebody in with a psychiatrist, let alone one that you trust with a worldview that might be similar to yours, has been virtually impossible. Oh, yeah. It is it is so difficult. I know, Tom, you pulled up some really interesting statistics regarding how prevalent psychiatrists are, and in some places in the country, how, how you really can't get find one even if you need one. No, uh, on average in the United States, there are nine psychiatrists for every 100,000 people. And I always think of that in terms of my specialty. In dermatology, there's about three dermatologists for every 100,000 people. So there are more psychiatrists than dermatologists, but there's might be more <laughs> mental illness that needs help than there is dermatology. I don't know, but there's... Um, there's three and a half times as many psychologists, 106,000, versus psychiatrists, or 30,000 in the United States. But there are 60% of the U.S. counties have no practicing psychiatrists. Uh, Man. It's crazy. There are some parts of New York State where there are over 600 psychiatrists per 100,000 people. <laughs> and yet, in some parts of Idaho, there's less than one per 100,000 people. You can imagine if somebody is in a crisis, you know, most psychiatric care is not necessarily something that comes along smoldering. It usually starts with a crisis, I yes. found. Uh, you can imagine how hard it is to get in with a specialist at a moment of crisis when you are in a pool of 100,000 people who need care from this person. Oh, absolutely. And right now, the aging of physicians has affected only two specialties more than psychiatry. Because right now, over 60% of psychiatrists are over 50%, 55 years old. Only pulmonology, lung specialists, and oncology, cancer specialists, are older on average. That's interesting to me as to why there might have been a higher percentage of psychiatrists in the past compared to now, but it's definitely a place where the, the need for psychiatry is not going away at all. I know just in my own specialty of family medicine, we end up doing a lot of psychiatric care because we can't get them into the specialists. Right. Uh, Right now, uh, we predict in the United States that within five years, there will be a shortage of between six and 15,000 psychiatrists versus what we need. And there were some really neat studies done. I love these mystery shopper studies. These are where people call and they pretend to be patients looking for appointments. And in calling 150 psychiatrists in the Washington, D.C. area, and who knows, but that there is a great need in that area. I can just imagine working in that environment. Out of 150 psychiatrists, only 15% said that they were accepting new p- patients, period. And only 7% of them, or 10 or 11 of them, said that you could schedule an appointment within two weeks. Wow. Uh, it's, it's amazing. And the 14% who were accepting new patients... Um, had appointments within 45 days. They did the same kind of study in the Los Angeles area, calling 229 psychiatrists. Uh, you could only make an appointment with 12% of them, or 28 of them. The a- average waiting time for the ones who were accepting patients was five weeks. Well, and I think there's a lot that goes into this, apart from the importance of getting the appropriate care for the people that, that need it. The, the other side of this is what happens when you can't get into a psychiatrist and you need one? Really, unfortunately, that I think attributes to the rise in suicides that we've seen really across the board over, over the last years and decades. But additionally, it overburdens the emergency rooms where if you can't get into a specialist, what do you do? You go to the ER. 
And that's not the most efficient or cost-effective way of providing medical care. We keep talking about cost of health care. I think this is one of the reasons where there's not enough people to give the right type of care. And to get uh, proper care for a psychiatric illness in an emergency room just doesn't happen. Now, the thing that it may help is it gets you into the psychiatric network faster That's because right. oftentimes they have to consult with a psychiatrist who has to come to the emergency room. Well, and, it, and it's so terrible, but I've heard that that advice given to people before. We can't get you in until, you know, what, six months, but why don't you go to the ER and then we'll be able to see you sooner? Okay. How does that make any sense at all? You right. Uh, although in some circumstances ends up being the best thing that can actually be done for a patient's health, even Sometimes though it sounds all you can do. convoluted. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, something else that's uh, fascinating is studies done about the religious beliefs of psychiatrists uh, versus the general population. In one study, and there aren't a lot of those, but in one study done at Duke University, uh, 2007, they uh, had over 1,100 physicians complete a survey, and this included 100 psychiatrists. And compared to the other f um, physicians, the psychiatrists were more likely to be Jewish. 29% were Jewish versus 13% of all the physicians. 17% of psychiatrists said they had no religious affiliation versus 10% of all the physicians. They were less likely to be Protestant, only 27% of psychiatrists versus 39% of all the physicians. And they were less likely to be Catholic. Only 10% of the psychiatrists were Catholic versus 22% of other physicians. So fascinating, and I hope Dr. Majors can give us some insight into why this might be. Yeah, those are pretty discordant numbers. It's an interesting study. I haven't seen numbers like that before. And the need, uh, you know, for mental illness uh, practitioners, you know, last year, 19% of U.S. adults experienced a mental illness, or about one in five U.S. adults. And just under 5% experienced what is called a serious mental illness, or over 11 million people, one in 25 well, uh, adults. I think the religious affiliation is also especially important in psychiatry because of the frequent uh, potential for spiritual overlap. There's a lot of times where it's hard to tease out if this is really kind of a spiritual problem or a mental health problem. Yes. And I know there's a lot of folks with mental health problems who are religious and they feel that it's a spiritual problem. So they have to be able to discuss their spirituality and their faith with their psychiatric team. And if religion is off the table to begin with, you have eliminated an enormous part of the vast majority of patients' worldviews. Oh, yeah. And how, how much are they going to trust a psychiatrist like that? It's, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Uh, you know, there was an interesting study done, and the, the results were reported as surgeons are red, psychiatrists are blue, referring to party affiliation among medical specialties. So, you know, with uh, red being more affiliated with you know, conservative thought and blue with liberal thought, surgeons, 67% of them who registered were registered as Republicans, and only a third were registered as uh, Democrats, whereas psychiatry, the only thing that was more blue than psychiatry was infectious disease. Uh, only 24% of psychiatrists were registered as red Republicans, 23% of infectious disease doctors. I'm, I'm really intrigued by some of these numbers, similar to the religion numbers. I, I didn't know that there was such a, you know, you'd expect it to be kind of a wash religion and specialty and politics, you wouldn't expect them to correlate, really. No, but there's an interesting, you know, anesthesiology is highly read, urology, ear, nose, and throat, radiology, and then particularly blue specialties, endocrinology, geriatrics, pediatrics, psychiatry, and infectious disease. Man, that's very interesting. We'll, we'll have to get some insight as to why that might be. Um, yeah, I can't wait to hear what Kevin has. He's always got fascinating to things to say about just about everything. Interestingly, this, the specialty of psychiatry grew out of neurology. So a lot of people don't realize that Sigmund Freud, who is probably the most famous historical psychiatric figure, was actually trained as a neurologist. Oh, interesting. 
And uh, as far as burnout goes, surprisingly, the burnout rate in psychiatry compared to other specialties is lower. So whereas, you know, a few years ago, there was about a 50% burnout rate among physicians, psychiatry was at 35%, tied for the lowest, along with ear, nose, and throat, and general surgery. Two of the reddest specialties tied with one of the bluest specialties for low burnout. Well, it's definitely something that, uh, you know, I didn't really think about even in the discussions about what specialty to pick when you're in med school. Yes. But I kind of wonder if medical students now are thinking about burnout a lot more. That would be a strong pull for psychiatry. It, It would be, especially if you're a good listener. But before we go to our break, I have our medical trivia question of the day. And the question is going to be, A person's name. Who is this historical person? He lived from 1745 to 1813. And in 1965, he was voted as the father of American psychiatry by the American Psychiatric Association. He practiced in Philadelphia. He signed the Declaration of Independence. He wrote the first psychiatric textbook printed in the United States. He was treasurer of the U.S. Mint, surgeon general of the Continental Army during the War for Independence. He served as a president of the American Society for the Abolition of Slavery. And he was known to have told his patients this, attend the poor. They are your best patients. God is their paymaster. And as the final clue, there is a medical school in Chicago named after him. Hang around to the end of the show for the answer. But before that, we have our special guest, Dr. Kevin Majors, after the break here on Dr. Doctor. We're back on Dr. Doctor with our guest, Kevin Majors. He's been with us before, born and raised in Minnesota, trained in Dallas and in Philadelphia, now on faculty at Harvard Medical School. He's been with us for several episodes on anxiety, but today we're going to turn the tables a little bit and learn about what he does day-to-day as a psychiatrist and what what is a psychiatrist, what do they do, and how do we get more of them. Kevin, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Great to be back. Uh, so, Kevin, why does the world need more Catholic psychiatrists? Well, I think that one reason is that there are many Catholics who would benefit from having a psychiatrist, and knowing that they have someone who shares their faith, I think, can be a great comfort to them, so that they know that the advice that they get is going to be consistent and respectful of, of, of their faith. There's a lot of Catholics who are worried that they're going to, if they go to a psychiatrist, they're going to end up getting somehow very bad advice, and it can happen. <laughs> that they, you know, because psychiatrists are dealing with people at a very sensitive moment usually. Yes. And so if someone has the Catholic faith, they also have a very deep um, optimism about human growth and potential. And that, that the difficulties and challenges of life can bring out the best in us. You know, and ultimately that the difficulties and challenges we face are coming to us from the providence of God, and they're the best for us. And so going to a psychiatrist with that kind of deep, profound sense that these things can bring out the best and be for the best, you know, and that is, you know, it stabilizes, in a sense, the quality of the therapy. It probably leads to different advice, too, right? I, I would think that It may, you... because rather than, for instance, thinking that if you have problems, in you know a situation you just need to get out of the situation yes it's more about how is this situation calling out the best in you if you have trouble in a marriage instead of just saying you know find another spouse you know is how can we work together to bring out the best and how can charity guide that kevin out of all the things you could have been coming out of medical school you chose psychiatry why yeah it was i went into medical school thinking I would do psychiatry. Uh, when I was going through med school, I loved all the specialties. I probably had the most fun on surgery. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, and, and I, I, it was great. But I, okay, there, is a, there is a moment in my junior year of college where I was trying to decide finally between psychiatry and philosophy. Wow. And these were my, you know, my, I knew that if I was going to go into medicine, that psychiatry would be it. And I, I remember very clearly, I was on a walk once, and a professor at the University of Dallas named uh, Jerry Wegemer, 
oh, professor yes. of English there. Great book on he, Thomas um, More. <laughs> yeah, he came up to me, and it was the, I remember, it was the Feast of Christ the King. And he came up to me and seemed to read my mind, and he said, so, Kevin, philosophy or psychiatry? Wow. And I said, that's exactly what I'm debating, and I'm trying to think through these things. And he said, he's an expert in Thomas More. Yes. Probably one of the world's great experts in yes. Thomas More. And he said, you know, Thomas More was also very attracted to giving his life to study philosophy. But he knew that what England needed more at that time were lawyers. Wow. So he made the sacrifice for the sake of his country to become a lawyer. And then he said, I think that what America needs right now are Catholic psychiatrists. What a beautiful <laughs> providential <laughs> moment. That's a blessing, isn't it? Oh, yes, my, I love stories was. like that. And Thomas More happens the, to be my own patron saint, I, so I love Thomas oh, More. Oh, right. that's wonderful. Yeah, so that ended up being, because it was something like the very next day, you know, I needed to sign up for the MCAT. So oh. I was deciding <laughs> to do that or not. And so I'm like, okay, I'm in. And I, I signed up for the MCAT and... And, uh, and everything went well. Man. Psychiatrists have the reputation, supported in studies, that they are the least likely specialists in medicine to believe in God. That What mm -hmm. kind of role did that play in your decision, if any? Uh, I had a sense that, for me, psychiatry was the right path, yes. and I felt like, you know, providentially I'd been guided there. Um, so I can't say that it was the because of my belief in God that I went into psychiatry, but certainly all the things that have been put in my heart, particularly, you know, and this doesn't exactly answer your question, I'll come back, but I had a very other defining moment when uh -huh. I was in um, my sophomore year of high school, and I went to a public library, and I wanted to find a book on philosophy that would challenge me. So I went to the section on philosophy, you know, and who knows what was there. Oh, sure. And, <laughs> and I, uh, I saw the biggest book, and I grabbed it, and it was the Summa Theologica. It was the Summa, the Summa Theologica of Thomas Aquinas. And I started That's reading awesome. it. I'm glad I it made it into uh, philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they're like, this is amazing. And I started reading Aquinas that night, and I've read them basically every night since then. Oh, my goodness. That is awesome. And so, You're and a so typical high school happened. sophomore. Mark Kevin, yeah. <laughs> yes, I was. I remember going to camps and just reading the Summa. In the <laughs> I was. I was a bit. I was a bit strange. You were one. You so, were that uh, kid, yeah. <laughs> yes, and and uh, so I uh, and I loved his kind his anthropology, his understanding of freedom, of free will, of the intellect, and how it relates to the passions. And so I had a lot of insights into just how to live life based on this. And then so I could see that with it, but I always had wanted to be a doctor since I was very young. And so I could see, you know, maybe psychiatry could unite these. And then I started reading the works of Viktor Frankl, and I read yes. all the, his works in English. You know, and I could see that this is a profoundly meaningful path, that psychiatry helps people face the question, the meaning of life and suffering. Yes. Yes, it does. And so, and so that, to me, was very profoundly appealing. Kevin, uh, what now, was your training mm -hmm. like? How did, you know, after med school, how do you get trained to be a psychiatrist now? Yeah, so you, after you graduate from med school, then you do four years of residency. Uh, and that's specialized training. Almost all of it is how to be a psychiatrist. You also do some neurology and other medicine specialties. And, but for the most part, it's all psychiatry. In a lot of medical specialties, you do different months, you know, different rotations, whether it's a surgical-type month or, or a different subspecialty of medicine, uh, at least in, in family medicine training. Are there different months in psychiatry? Yeah, so the way normally it works is your, your first year of residency is spent in neurology and medicine and a little bit of psychiatry. Ah. The second year is inpatient psychiatry, uh, so you're treating people who are often committed or kind of locked, essentially, you know, in these inpatient units. Uh, and then the third year is outpatient psychiatry, which is what most people think of where you yes. go into an office setting and see a psychiatrist. And then the fourth year is more um, doing consult psychiatry, where you're going to people in the hospital for other reasons and you're giving them the psychiatric support or other things, other specializations within psychiatry. Now, how much of psychiatry 
is focused on medication versus talk therapy? So fortunately, you residencies have to train all of the you know the people becoming psychiatrists residents in psychotherapy, and they need to train them in also within that in, in what's called psychodynamic, which is the more Freudian therapy, and then also in cognitive behavioral therapy. So there are these requirements that they have to learn psychotherapy, but uh, medications and handling medications is a large part of residency. But it turns out the, the medication part of psychiatry just is not that complex. So you learn that pretty fast in your oh. second year. And so really for me, the third and fourth year were mostly spent learning how to do the therapy stuff. And how did they set you up? Are you sitting in a room with one of your the faculty while they're seeing patients? And do the patients have to be willing to let you in? So when you're a resident, you're the doctor. And so you're able to be, you're the one treating them, and you basically never see them with an attending psychiatrist who's someone fully licensed, the, the professors. So, uh, so, you're doing everything on your own. So and how then do you, you develop report. those skills if you can't observe someone else who's developed them already? Yeah, so it's called supervision. And what you do is you record a lot of the therapy sessions ah. and, and video record or audio record, and then you play them for your expert supervisors. Okay. Got to watch the And tape, so you have right? that every week. And then I also did a fellowship with the Beck Institute for yes. Cognitive Therapy in Philadelphia. And that's all you mail them every week. You send them a complete session. Wow. And then every week you have like a half hour, 45 minutes or hour session talking with the expert at the Beck Institute on how to improve how you're doing the therapy. Oh. Uh, Kevin, Kevin, when you were in training, what was it like, especially related to your faith? How was Christianity treated? Did you feel like you had to walk on eggshells or was it welcomed during training? I, I, so I went to UT Southwestern in Dallas and I had the most wonderful colleagues there and, and professors. I never had the slightest problems with any of them. And so everyone wants people to thrive. And generally speaking, especially when you're dealing with people who are very psychotic they're having, you're hearing voices, they're delusional, or they're manic, uh, or they're having extreme reactions to, you know, overdoses of drugs. There's not a lot of problems. With it. It's like there's not a lot of issues where we would disagree on what's the best sure. kind of approach here. But then when you get into psychotherapy, you're helping people overcome depression and anxiety and cravings. And again, there's not that much area to really be that to, at odds with each other. Very and good. so you end up, so I found not the slightest problems in any respect when it came to like, you know, being a Christian. They all knew that I was Catholic and you know, I was very committed to the faith and I would go to mass every day. And, you know, and, uh, and so, but everyone was, the nice thing about psychiatry being in a sense kind of liberal <clears throat> is they are generally pretty accepting. <laughs> <laughs> so they are tolerant. Even of Catholics, I think so. Good, that's good. I, so, I, and that was that was my experience. And in general, if if you're comfortable in your own skin, then they're comfortable with you. Sure. And if you, if you're conflicted or not sure, or you know, then they're going to not know where you stand on things. But you're just really clear with them. It's easy. What's your typical week like as a practicing psychiatrist? Yeah. So the the typical thing is that I would see patients in like three hour chunks. And, and I have an office that's about 10 minutes from you know, my home. And I go there and I have an assistant uh, who she's actually in Texas. And so she schedules everyone for me. And then she gets them just neatly arranged. So I have a nice waiting room and people wait there and then I get them. And so it's a very simple thing. You know, I have an office and people will come and sit down and say, so what have you been working on this past week? Uh, and then we dive back into what we're working on. How long are usually the my sessions? Yeah, usually they're about forty-five minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be an hour. It could be, it could be fifteen minutes. Um, but that would be for typically like a phone check-in. It would be fifteen minutes just to make sure everything is okay. So you do some patients yeah. remotely. Yeah. That that typical day that you described. Would you say that's pretty par for the course with psychiatry, or there? Would that represent kind of the average day in a psychiatrist's life? Uh, 
Well, you know, so I talk to sometimes, you know, and meet up for you know dinner with other psychiatrists, and uh, sometimes I hear the hours they're keeping, and I don't understand it. So <laughs> there will be 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. and uh, or on call or on you know that they're up up nights. I think that psychiatry is unique in that you can carve out precisely the life that you want so that you are at your best at each moment. Um, and you just have to like do that, I think. And sometimes if you're like part of a bigger, uh, I don't know, a bigger office or a big institution, it can be hard to do that. And I have patients who are psychiatrists who find that they do have a hard time limiting because especially if they take insurance, uh, and they're in a big practice, and then it gets hard to, and then they get a little bit more, much more burned out, really. So if you're doing patient care in three-hour chunks, are you doing a couple of those chunks every day? Well, it depends, because I also have a lot of other initiatives. So I have, um, I, you know, so I teach at Harvard Med School, and that, you know, would be one or more chunks also. Okay. Uh, where I'm going to go and give classes. And then I run a company called Optimal Work, and so I try to work on that. And I have a nonprofit mentoring program. So there's a number of things that I do, uh, but I typically do them in chunks. It's like a morning chunk or an afternoon chunk and never in the evenings. What's the main reason nowadays that patients seek out psychiatrists? I, my, um, my practice specializes in anxiety disorders. Right. And uh, and then you get you get some depression and bipolar you know with that, but for the most part it's really anxiety, and that's probably the number one reason people go to psychiatrists. Yes, uh, is that uh, you know they're they're trying to get help with anxiety, but depression is common and uh, addiction psychiatry is kind of its own thing. Yes, and if people are going for help with addictions, usually it's best that they see someone who specializes in just that. So in your practice, I haven't gotten to ask you this on other shows, but what percentage of your anxiety patients are on medication for anxiety? Uh, I would hope that it's something like 10% or 20, uh, 15%. Okay. Um, and and al almost always it's that they came into me on with meds already. Right. So many of my patients are referred by other psychiatrists. And they're for particularly because the people are looking for a way of getting off of their anxiety meds. Ah, okay. And they know, and that's kind of what I do is I help people get off the meds and basically get so much better in how they face anxiety that the meds are irrelevant. Yes. And that's what I've gathered from our other uh, interviews. That's what I expected you to say, but I, I wanted to know for sure. How does yeah. the life of a psychiatrist who practices inpatient psychiatry? differ from one that practices outpatient psychiatry? Uh, typically, I mean, so one thing is the level of severity of the cases that you're facing. That to be, you know, if people are in an inpatient unit, generally it's because they're a threat of harming themselves or others, or they're rapidly deteriorating in, in some way. And so you are doing um, much more medication use yes. and reliance on medicines. Um, you're not able to make much behavioral modification because they're in the unit. And so you're not like changing their patterns of living for when they're back home. Uh, and I try to keep people out of the hospital as much as possible. It's extremely rare that I would hospitalize someone. I think in the last 10 years, it's happened once. Wow. Wow. That is awesome. So, well, what are your um, greatest and, joys of being a psychiatrist, Kevin? The, um, so my best moments are when people cry because they feel free <laughs> and, and that yes. happens a lot. You know, it was, you know, it's, you know, just actually it was a beautiful thing yesterday. You know, I was talking with a, a physician, uh, patient and, and when he saw something, uh, he saw, he understood how reframing works. Oh, yes. You know, and taking a challenge and instead of complaining about it, which causes what we call a negative processing bias and sure. drags people down, it actually can bring out the best in you and you're and it can be meaningful and you can be aiming. And he he kind of cried a bit and just in seeing the beauty of that.
I thought, wow, how many, uh, how many doctors get to help people like this? Yes. You know, where the thing that they thought was the worst, blackest thing in their life is actually an opportunity to become the person they want to be. And so they feel liberated. And, and to be loving, to be understanding, doesn't mean getting rid of anxiety. It's irrelevant. You can be loving and be you know, patient and kind and generous, no matter how you feel. So you help people to be accepting of the emotion, but committed to their ideals. Kevin, that's beautiful. We're going to take a break here. Be right back with more Dr. Doctor in the studios of Redeemer Radio. We're back with the second half of our interview with Kevin Majors. Kevin, practical question for listeners. When should they seek a psychiatrist versus a psychologist or other mental health counselor? So I think that um, it's not an easy question to answer because many psychologists or any kind of like licensed mental health counselor or executive coach could do about 90% of what I do. Wow. Um, so it depends so much on how the psychiatrist practices. My practice is very much focused on using, helping people to change their behavior and that changes their brain. But I'm focusing on behavior as the way of doing that. And if I, use medicines, it's, yes. it's, if I use medicines, it's a, a newer kind of use where you're using memory modifiers. Yes, you mentioned that in use. one episode, yes. Yeah, and, and so I'm not typically ever using regular meds unless it's a case of bipolar disorder or something that requires it. So with, um, so it, what is most important in my mind is what is the kind of therapy orientation of the person doing the therapy, you know, and I like people who practice cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, um, especially, yeah, CBT, especially something called ACT yes. or acceptance and commitment therapy and people who practice ACT, um, in my like experience and the stuff I read online and the stuff I listen to tends to be the most respectful of beliefs because they're always working to clarify the person's own ideals. And so because they're trying to draw out what are the highest ideals this person has that can, they can be aiming for, they're not trying to impose their own ideals or beliefs on people. So acceptance of commitment therapy, that can be done by any type of therapist or even an executive coach. And probably many executive coaches have so much common sense that they are you know, better <laughs> than most therapists. I mean, <laughs> so on, Oh, know. no, don't say it. How, it can how be could, true. It can be true. Yeah. How could a patient figure out uh, who to go see? What would be the best way to identify someone? So I usually have people go to um, the, the the Academy of Cognitive Therapy has a website, uh, academyofct.org. Um, there's another one for ACT, but if you they just Google how to find an ACT therapist, I think it'll come up. It's a funny website name, contextualscience.org. But uh, but the those are the two main places I tell people to look. Everyone right now says on their websites that they do cognitive behavioral therapy, um, but uh, usually mem like membership in these two institutions of um, you know, the Academy of Cognitive Therapy or being listed on contextualscience.org is a pretty good indicator this person is actually seriously trained in how to do CBT. That's excellent advice. Kevin, you already answered how your Catholic beliefs affect your practice of psychiatry in the beginning, but what ethical challenges are psychiatrists facing today that would be important for Catholics to know about? So I think that there, um, you know, there, there certainly are challenges, you know, in the realm of sexual ethics uh, and in the realm of marriage. And so I have a website called Purity is Possible. Uh, which helps people is possible. Yeah, pure, uh, yeah, dot com Good. or dot org. Uh, and which is how I approach uh, sexually like, addictive behavior. Um, but there I'm very clear that I'm not telling them what's wrong myself because I don't think the role of the psychiatrist is to define morals. 
now I could do that as a you know in a different with a different hat on if I wanted to just be an educated Catholic layman. Sure. But as a psychiatrist, I'm teaching people how to overcome cravings that lead them to violate their beliefs and ideals. Uh. You know, and so and if I focus on it that way, then I don't have any ethical conundrums. So I because I'm not telling people exactly what they have to believe, but if you have a craving that is leading your life off course and it's taking you away from your highest ideals like for instance if you're catholic you know it is violating your your faith uh well then i can help you take away the power of those cravings and that's the real work of of acceptance and commitment accepting the cravings and committing to the what matters most in life and doing it and doing it so the the Overall, if people stay true to their ideals, their emotions will eventually come along. Yes. And so emotions should conform to ideals. Not, it shouldn't be that your ideals are made to conform to your emotions by being lowered. And yet that happens. We just uh, did an episode on euthanasia in Canada, and that sounds like exactly Mm -hmm. what's going on is the opposite. Kevin, is there yeah. still a stigma out there among people seeking out psychiatrists? Um, I, I think my mom is more willing to tell her friends I'm a psychiatrist, so I, I don't know. <laughs> well, if that's happened, then it's, it's all over, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, just, it's fine. But she's, no, she's, I'm joking. She's super supportive always. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, uh, but there, it's, it's, uh, but there is, um, I think uh, one thing is like just being a psychiatrist that has its own unique thing. Going to see a psychiatrist has just become so common that I, my impression is that my patients like talk about it with their family and friends very openly. Yes. And, and, and they refer family and friends because they've talked about it openly. And if they see a psychiatrist who they think is, is very helpful, they're actually kind of eager to tell people, who are also struggling, hey, there's help that you can get. So I I think there's more stigma when there's more despair and people don't see that they can get better. And then it's just like a permanent label you get. Oh, sure. But if if it's something where you can grow and it's not a permanent label, it's something you can work through and it can actually bring out the best in you uh, and make you stronger of having grown through it, well, then there's no real stigma anymore. Kevin, but being a, being a psychiatrist always will have a little bit of something because people get weirded out. <laughs> sure, but they it's think also you're analyzing them all the time. Effect. Yeah, <laughs> they think which is like I don't know why I would. I, why I'm would always examining people's skin whenever I'm somewhere. Right? It's <laughs> 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 like I'm not obsessed with analyzing people, but uh, but funny is like how also shameless people are to tell you their most personal problems, yes. you know, on a ski, on a ski lift or on, <laughs> in an airplane, you know, and they're like, oh, you're a psychiatrist? You're well, safe. And then they tell you their problem. <laughs> like, and you wish they wouldn't. Yeah, you might, you might need another <laughs> identity or something yeah. like that. Um, you know, yeah, Kevin, that, yeah. what, what is our best strategy for getting more Catholics to go into psychiatry? Well, I... That's a that is a great question. <laughs> so I wish I knew. You know, I think that uh, one, um, the more uh, we Catholic psychiatrists can get the message out there of this is a golden age right now, and psychology is at the point now of being so like compatible with the faith, you know, and with good philosophy of Thomas Aquinas and. This movement of cognitive behavioral therapy uh, is profoundly positive. And so I think in the future, it's interesting, In you may have heard of Robert Hugh Benson. Oh, yes, Lord of the World. Uh, yeah, yeah, Lord of the World. He also wrote a book called The Dawn of All, which was because people thought Lord of the World, which is about the Antichrist coming yes. in 70 years hence, um, was too negative. <laughs> so he is, wrote yes. <laughs> another book uh, about 70 years in the future, an alternate future, and where the entire world has actually converted to Catholicism. Oh my gosh. And if, and he actually thought that psychology played a key role, that when they saw the solidity of the kind of the anthropology of the faith, 
you know, that this ended up converting the world. And I, I read that when I was young, too, and I think that it's always been there. But, you know, I, I think eventually it's going to be, it's going to just show the truth of the faith. They'll see that, yeah, the, the light of faith really is working with the light of reason and how to do the best psychology. That is just beautiful. So I think you've answered some of the question I had about how psychiatry has advanced in the last 25 to 50 years. You would put CBT and ACT ACT therapy high on that list, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would. But even within the Freudian, like the, the Freudian line, yes, um, there has been such profound development that now when I'm teaching residents, um, what they're learning in, is called short-term intensive psychodynamic therapy. Okay. It's just a newer version of the Freudian therapy has actually been so much of the old baggage has been shed of the Freudian theory. Right. And they're doing something almost identical to what is now being done in CBT. So there's even a convergence between these two schools. Oh, yeah, because I thought that Freudian therapy was pretty much debunked. Well, it had it had certain problems. One is it doesn't lend itself to being studied in research studies. Right. Because it's so ongoing and amorphous. Yes. And I think its real problem was it was highly dependent on the skill, clinical skill and common sense of the practitioner. So you could have really excellent results and treatment, you know, because you had really excellent human beings doing it. Okay. You know, but but the theory was, you know, maybe they could make it somehow help people. But in general, a lot of people were not being helped by and really by watered down ideas of repression and stuff that entered the popular yes. you know, consciousness. Kevin, what do you think are the, the greatest misconceptions about psychiatry or psychiatrists? Yeah, well, I think actually, I think it's that they think people think that uh, if they're in a social setting with a psychiatrist, that they're always being analyzed. <laughs> you or need that we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, ask them about their early childhood. And, you know, uh, more and more psychiatry is focused on helping people thrive in the present moment, you know, and not necessarily needing to, like, rehash and, and you know, the, the entire past. So but it's how do you use those memories now to grow. Because there's been a big movement now toward what's called positive psychology, hasn't there? To some extent, yeah. It, uh, and I think that, that positive psychology is probably not a big part of psychiatry ah. because it hasn't become so much of a, its own school of therapy. With like, They have certain interventions, but they don't necessarily have a coherent system. Okay. And, and you know, maybe that's not entirely fair, but it just hasn't permeated into how psychiatrists learn. Uh, but the general things of um, helping people to focus on character strengths and develop resilience, uh, and or you could talk about, you know, like Angela Duckworth and grit. <laughs> yes, you know, yes, yes. Those are nice things in psychology, you know, that kind of are positive psychology, but then also you have Carol Dweck, She's my favorite, by, you know, actually. Her stuff on, on mindsets, you know, fixed mindset versus a growth mindset, it's fantastic stuff. And uh, just you have to check out her YouTube videos, Dweck, D-W-E-C-K. Uh, yes, I'm familiar with her. She does great work. I love listening to books on tape like hers. Yeah, exactly. And these people are right in between what you would call positive psychology and then cognitive behavioral therapy. Got it. And where did cognitive behavioral therapy come from? Uh, it came, I, uh, primarily, I would say, Aaron Beck. So, uh, but Viktor Frankl was an early precursor. Now, they call and what so, he did logotherapy and, or meaning therapy. Uh, yeah, was, exactly. Was that just an early name? Is there still a thing called logotherapy or has it folded yeah, into it? What, it's what he called it, but it, I, and I, I, I could be wrong on this, but my impression is that logotherapy never became a full school of thought. Yes. Like didn't. it didn't actually become a coherent therapy. And so when you hear people saying they practice logotherapy, you have no idea what exactly that's going to mean. It's like calling a, a philosopher a personalist. Okay. It's like you just, you just don't know what it's going to mean. You think it's in a certain neighborhood maybe. 
but it's not. And, and something else that maybe listeners should know about is something called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. What yeah. what influence does this have on your specialty? Uh, well, it oh, that's a you know it's a good question. It has, on the one hand, the DSM defines disorders uh, and establishes criteria to be used in research. So that can, if we we, we want to know that if inter, if an intervention, you know, like let's say you know we have um, you know there's like a new drug that you want to treat a condition. Well, you just want to make sure that you're giving it to like a real group of people that are kind of the same. So then you can, and so that if there's differences, it's actually that you're seeing how effective is the drug, not this was just a group of people who didn't have a lot in common. And so it's just trying to establish what they have in common so that they can be studied as a group. It's not trying to claim that these things necessarily exist as their own kind of entity. So, for instance, you can have panic disorder with agoraphobia or without agoraphobia, and you can have generalized anxiety disorder, and the same person could move between those diagnoses. But what you want to know is, does exposure therapy work for someone with panic disorder with agoraphobia? So at least while you're doing that research, you have to like make sure they meet the criteria for it. What I don't want people to do is to then turn those diagnoses into permanent labels. Ah. And now they think this is who I am because that's not what it was meant to do. It's just meant to help us study interventions. So it kind of helps us because we can't measure the blood pressure, you know, <laughs> of an anxiety attack per se, but kind of getting some of the the themes and features it can help. Yeah, so you need therapy. to know that for a panic attack, you know you, you, that there's going to be one of these nine symptoms: it's increased heart rate and tightness in the chest, shortness of breath, dizziness, sweating, and so on. But it's just because that's commonly what you see. It's not all that you see, but it's commonly what you see. So for research purposes, that's what we wanted to find. But it's not meant to label, and so it's day-to-day -day use in psychiatry is probably not that great. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. And I think that, um, you know, there's, uh, within the newer forms of therapy, uh, like exception and commitment therapy, there's really no distinction made, I, you can almost say, between anxiety disorders. Okay. And this is what I said in the show before, is yes. that the only anxiety disorder is viewing anxiety itself as a disorder. Yes. Yes. So and if you treat it like that, all anxiety is the result of things that are not real threats acquiring a threat label. And that label is totally changeable. It's, you, can, you can change it. You can habituate it, it's called, until it's gone. And you do that by approaching the thing while the alarm is sounding. Yes. And so in some way, all anxiety responds to the right approach to doing exposures. And that's what, uh, that's what we teach people now. That's beautiful. Last question. What resources would you recommend for someone who wants to learn more about psychiatry in general? Well, um, probably the, the best thing is the uh, first part of the second part of the Summa Theologica by <laughs> Thomas Aquinas. Uh, the, uh, I think that I have some favorite books. Yes. Uh, you know, I had mentioned the Mindfulness and Acceptance Workbook for Anxiety by yes. Eifert and Forsyth. Um, I, I like books by Russ Harris. Yes. Uh, he has, his most popular is called The Happiness Trap. Yes, I love that too. Um, yeah, I like books by Daniel Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L. Yes. And Mindsight is a great one. Um, I love books by Sue Johnson, who does couples therapy and, she, and attachment theory. And she has one called Hold Me Tight, okay. which is awesome. I have couples work through it chapter by chapter together. Kevin, thank and, you so yeah. much for another wealth of information. We hope to have you back again here on Dr. Doctor. I look forward to it. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. And their investment portfolios reflect that. 
Ave Maria mutual funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. Of course, it's related to psychiatry. So I asked you about the father of American psychiatry who signed the Declaration of Independence, was a U.S. Mint treasurer, was Surgeon General of the Continental Army, and there's a medical school named after him in Chicago. Had you heard of this person before, Andrew? I had heard of him, but I hadn't seen really his list of accomplishments, everything from the treasurer to the, you know, president of the Society Against Slavery? I mean, wow. I, I have a huge new respect for somebody who was president at the founding of our country that I knew very little about, and his name is Benjamin Rush. Yes, Rush Medical School in Chicago. In, in Chicago. And, you know, what a great person to have as the father of your specialty uh, in psychiatry. I mean, what's not to like about this list of accomplishments? I mean, early on, he's against slavery, living in the North. Uh, and I love that quote, attend the poor. They are your best patients. God is their paymaster. Um, so, yeah, Benjamin Rush, a good model for modern psychiatrists. And, you know, Kevin Majors just hit it out of the park again. I mean, I find myself thinking, wow, if I could be a psychiatrist like he is, that would be a blast. Well, and I, I think that's one of our goals, kind of, with looking at the different specialties for folks that are interested in medic medicine or healthcare in general, hopefully to inspire you and to give you some resources about your path in the future. And to encourage people going into medicine to say, hey, consider this. Have you ever thought of psychiatry in this way? You would be doing so many people so much good. Amen. Thank you all for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of our show with a friend. Invite them to listen on a podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to rate and review our show because it helps new listeners find us. And be sure to send your questions and comments, anything you've learned from our show and things you'd like to be included on future shows. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit redeemerradio.com slash doctor.